And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic Carino! Here's a chance for the equaliser And it's buried Up comes Carmona Arch up to Barton Spain lead in the dying seconds I'm Michelle Owen and this is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast World Cup Edition. It's semi-final time and today Spain made it to the final of the 2023 Women's World Cup. They will face either European champions England or tournament co-hosts Australia. With me today are the Athletics Michael Cox and Jay Harris. Hey guys. Hey. Hello. First up then, let's get to Spain v Sweden. So, Sweden, beaten finalists in 2003 and serial semi-finalists, took on last four debutants Spain in the first semi-final of this World Cup. The Athletics' like Avery Herrera was at Eden Park in Auckland, Tamaki Makaro, and here's her match report. So, Spain is in the World Cup final. Jorge Villas' team was slightly superior during the first half. They dominated possession, survived Sweden's high pressure, but lacked verticality. In the second half, the entry of Sama Parayuelo was decisive. She gave the team what it lacked, verticality and a lot of perseverance in the chances. She was the hero for Spain again, scoring the first goal. Although Rebecca Blomqvist scored in the 88th minute, Olga Scarmona goal from a set-piece gave Spain the victory, who beat Sweden for the first time in their history. After a year of conflicts, after a year of doubts, Spain is for the first time in the final of a World Cup. Yeah, let's be honest. Uh, the game was pretty much on sleep mode until the 80th minute. Trying to sum that up, really. The strength of the Swedish defensive setup has really come on through in this game. And their quarterfinal against Japan, their off the ball shape was good. They got quite a lot of height. And because of that, Michael, it creates something that's quite hard to break down, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think Spain had as much possession as I would have expected. And I think what Sweden did really well against Japan was they, they pressed high and they dominated possession, which I don't think people anticipated. So, yeah, there was, I mean, Sweden are very good without the ball, but it wasn't as one-sided in terms of possession as I expected for long periods. And I think at times Sweden pressed quite well. I didn't really see Spain's good players getting on the ball much, to be honest. I was surprised that Alexia Puteas came back in because... She's missed a year through injury, and when she has played at this tournament, she hasn't looked particularly fit. Bonmati's been excellent against the weaker sides in this tournament, not so good against Japan or the Netherlands or Sweden. So, yeah, I, I didn't really think Spain were creating many chances, to be honest, and, and not just because Sweden were defending well, but just because I didn't think they were getting the ball into the, into the creative players to start with. Why do you think it was so tentative, Jay? Uh, was it because, you know, it's a World Cup semi-final? Was it a consequence of how each side was set up? There's definitely an element of that. And like Michael said, Spain certainly had the ball in some semi-decent areas, but they just couldn't seem to find a way to get past Sweden. I remember there were a couple of times where Caldente was trying to chip it in behind Sweden's defence, but then Musovic would kind of sweep up and, and come and claim the ball. So it just felt very 
just a little bit tense, as you'd expect. But I also thought Sweden were, for all the credit they deserve for how well they defended, they were finding it quite difficult at times to kind of get out of their half and string two or three passes together. So it kind of felt like the game was just being played smack bang in the middle where Sweden weren't really going much further than the halfway line, but then Spain weren't really being particularly penetrative with the ball anyways. So the first sub came on at 57 minutes, Paranello on for Pateas, who Michael mentioned there. Uh, her direct dribbling did start to make a difference. And at this point in the game, maybe felt like Spain were increasing the pressure a bit. And then Parallelo's shot on the 18th minute was Spain's first on target all game. It broke the deadlock. We thought that was it. But two Swedish subs saw Sweden score. Uh, but then, 94 seconds later, it all happened so quickly. What a hit from Carmona from a Spanish set piece. Or, Michael, I think Jonathan Pierce said in commentary, terrific shot, but should the keeper have done better? What do you think? Well, wouldn't want to question Jonathan Pierce's football inside, but I, I think that's a little bit harsh. To be honest, I thought Musovic did quite well to get there. I mean, she's one of the taller goalkeepers at this tournament. And I do wonder, I mean, if that was at the other end, I'm not sure Cole would have been getting near that one. So I think it's quite harsh. I think she's a little bit unsighted. I think it swerves a bit in the air. I, I wouldn't blame the goalkeeper for that. I think I'd be really harsh after the tournament she's had. But uh, I'd, I'd just say that was a great hit. I mean, if there's any criticism to be had of Sweden, I'd say they probably switched off in terms of allowing the short corner, allowing it to the edge. And that came, what, 60 seconds after they'd been celebrating a goal? And you do, you know, you do wonder whether after that adrenaline you're just not quite thinking clearly because it's just not the kind of thing that Sweden usually do. They're usually so well organised. But yeah, I think primarily you have to say it's a really good hit. And Spain have scored a couple of really good goals in this tournament. It wasn't that dissimilar from a goal that Abelera scored, I think, in their first game. feels like months ago. But yeah, they aren't always opening up the opposition, but they've definitely got some players who can hit, hit it from uh, long range. Spain felt a bit more composed today, didn't they, Jay? It was sort of less frantic attacking than we've seen in some games so far. How do you think they've grown or, or developed as a team over this tournament? I was just going to say quickly on the... Um... Spain's winning goal, completely agree with, with Michael that so quickly after getting back into the tie and doing the, the difficult part of the job, you know that you just have to do whatever it takes to to see the team over the line and, and take it into extra time. So to switch off from a corner like that, I really think it's unfair to blame Musevic because the initial two or three errors are, are made by Sweden's defence. Mm. Um, and I know we briefly touched upon Paralelo coming on for Pateas at the 57th minute. And I remember Pateas' body language was you know, it seemed like she was a little bit disappointed to come off understandably in a, in a World Cup semi-final, but Paralelo immediately just kind of went on that mazy dribbling run and instantly gave Spain a different dimension. So in terms of how Spain have evolved at this tournament, I think we've seen Paralelo have just become this absolute force of nature. It's crazy to think she's only 19 years old, but when Spain, as we've seen at this tournament, are so comfortable on the ball, I think Paralea just gives them such a direct threat in behind and she was instantly causing Ericsson a lot of problems and Illustre a lot of problems. So the fact that she scored again, and I think she's now scored eight goals in 13 international appearances is absolutely phenomenal for a player of, of that experience. But I think just the fact that she came on, Spain had to play a little bit differently. Hermoso started to drop a little bit deeper. I think that kind of fluidity and ability to change tactics definitely helped them out. We should emphasise as well how impressive it is that Spain are in this final. We need to have a bit more context, which we talked about in our preview show and we've talked about a bit in the tournament. 15 players refusing to play under the manager. The 4-0 loss to Japan in the group stage and the, the changes that happened after that defeat. What do you make of the sort of chemistry of this Spain side, Michael? Because 
it's strange to think there's a lot of players back home in Spain that have essentially ruled themselves out of being part of this team and being part of this journey. Yeah, it's a very big question. I, I don't think there's, <laughs> I don't think there's a great deal of chemistry. I mean, there's a, there's obviously lots of players who have refused to participate because of the dispute with the federation and with the manager. There's some players who, twelve months or six months ago, were refusing to participate, who have decided to come back into the fold because they say changes have been made. I think when you speak to people around Spain. Maybe changes haven't been made, but they're players who just think, well, I really want to win, win the World Cup, so I'm going to get involved. And then they've got, I mean, they've got funny situations. They've got the, the Barcelona backup goalkeeper who is playing in the side. No one expected that. They've got a funny situation where Bonmati really enjoyed having the Barcelona team based around her and the Spain team based around her because of Puteres' absence. Then Puteres comes back. They don't particularly get on. I don't think Puteres necessarily deserves a, a place in the team at the moment. So it's been funny. It's been almost the, I'd say the outsiders who've been the the players who have won games for Spain. You know, Redondo plays for Levante, obviously not one of the bigger clubs in Spain. And she's been excellent running in behind. And Parallelo, who's kind of on the fringes of both Barcelona and Spain in terms of the starting eleven, has come on two games in a row. And like Jay says, has completely changed the game. So I don't know. I don't know whether they've found the right balance or the right chemistry. But they do enough. They've, they've got a pretty solid defence. They have got some individuals who can make the difference. But it, it still doesn't feel entirely cohesive to me. I can't really work them out as a team. No, I was just going to say, on the dispute Spain have had with the Federation, I, I find it a really tricky situation because you can admire the fact that a team's, you know, grinded their way through a tournament and reached the final, but still feel uncomfortable about what the future holds. And obviously, you know, I've written about Jamaica, but it, I think there are a lot of parallels with Jamaica's situation, with Nigeria's situation, where I don't know if it's a good thing they've got to the final because it just does it just almost empower the federation and the Jorge Vilda that some of the decisions they've made over the last year that have upset the players was the right thing to do? Or does it continue to raise attention because we're still talking about it? It's a bit of a strange situation. I'd be intrigued to see what happens at the end of the tournament, especially if they maybe lose in the final, if the players come out and say, you know, we kind of just sacrificed how we felt about it because, as Michael said, we just wanted the the thrill and experience of playing in a World Cup and trying to win a World Cup. Or if it is as rosy as seems to be on the pitch at the moment, it's a very strange situation. Yeah, and Spain had never won a knockout game in a tournament before this World Cup as well, so it's incredible. Uh, Sweden then will be in the third place playoff. How should we sum up their contribution to this World Cup, would you say, Jay? Yeah, I think they performed really well. I think the fact that they, they knocked out the, the US is... You know, that was one of the most iconic moments of the tournament and, and of recent tournaments. It very much felt like a, a changing of the guard. Obviously, the the thing that's kind of let Sweden down is this over-reliance on set pieces. It just felt like that was going to be the only way they, they scored against Spain. Even from throw-ins, they kind of added that weapon to their arsenal as well. So I think, obviously, they'll be frustrated that they've, you know, failed at the semi-final stage before and they had an opportunity to, especially when they equalised, push Spain into extra time and really make it uncomfortable for them but did manage to get over the line. But I still think they've managed to have a, a pretty successful tournament nonetheless. Do you think Sweden will have any regrets, Michael? Maybe not coming out of the shell a bit more uh, to score before Spain in this game? Were the tactics right? What do you think? I, I think tactically, I, I think it was fine. I, I think they just didn't quite match the runs to the crosses a couple of times. Rolfa had a good chance at the far post. Blackstinius, just before she came off, made a really good run, but couldn't quite get anything on that cross. Yeah, I've quite enjoyed watching them. They've been a mixed bag, to be honest. There's been 
a few times where the results haven't necessarily matched up to the performances. They were actually outplayed for the first 20 minutes of the game against Italy that they somehow won 5-0, which was very strange. And I thought, to be honest, against the US, I thought they were really poor on the day. Didn't offer anything on the counter and basically got lucky to take it to penalties. That said, I think we all agreed that going into the quarterfinals, Japan had been the most impressive team in this tournament by a long way. And Sweden deservedly, I mean, they completely outplayed Japan for that for the first hour. I mean, Sweden were absolutely brilliant. The two midfielders in particular, Angledow and, and Rubinson, were, were superb. So I don't think they did anything wrong tactically here. I think it probably came down a little bit to, maybe it's harsh to say because I know two subs combined for the equaliser, but you, Sweden don't have anyone like Parallelo who can come on and change a game. I mean, that I thought they had the upper hand at the start of the second half, but that sub just completely changed the game. So... Yeah, they don't have the resources that, that Spain do in terms of depth. And I think that won the game here. Who do you think Spain want to face, Jay? Australia or England? I mean, they probably want to feel like they, they want to get one over on England because of what happened at the, the Euros last summer. So certainly that's the matchup that I want to see. I think they'd probably maybe favour Australia. I know Australia have done well at this tournament. I still think because England are the Euro champions and just the fact that They've only lost, what is it, one game in the last 37 matches under Serena Wiegmann. The tactical flexibility that they have, I think even with Australia being the co-host, I think you'd prefer to face them than England. So Spain are the first side to book their place at the final at Stadium Australia in Sydney. Gadigal on Saturday the 20th of August. But who will join them? Co-host Australia or will it be England? We'll talk about that next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. England have made their third consecutive Women's World Cup semi-final. In 2015, Japan ended England's hopes. Ogimi in the centre. Oh, it's slipped back towards Young off the bar and in. Was that in? It's cleared off the line. It's been given. Hawkeye says the ball was over the line. And it's an own goal. In 2019, who can forget that celebration? It was the USA. Lovely ball, Morgan. Fabulous goal. Tomorrow, Australia stand in the way of a first final appearance for the Lionesses. So, will it be third time's a charm or more semi-final sadness? First up to get an Aussie assessment of how the Matildas are gearing up for their first ever semi-final, producer Abby spoke to Australian journalist Adam Peacock. Adam, what are the expectations around Aussie media looking at the Matildas? Because I can do the English one, but honestly, I don't. we're a very pessimistic country. So how is it with Australia? Are you uh, rooting for the girls? 
Well, you you passed on that pessimism um, in facets <laughs> of life um, with some of our English origins, but in all seriousness, I, I think it's it's more hope and more not I wouldn't call it surprise, but happiness that we've been able to do something that's never been done before and and drag the whole country along for the ride and and the journey, which has been spectacular so far. Like, yeah, we we knew we had a very good women's team, but the, the greater Australian public in terms of like jumping on like it has, I think is beyond everyone's wildest expectations. So I think the media is now firmly behind the team and, and supporting and whatever happens in this game against England, I don't think it'll to be the detriment of any one player or, or the team itself. It's just left the sport in a much better place than what it was a month ago, which is fantastic to see as a football lover. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that, how has it changed from day one of the World Cup to where we've got to today within within Australia? So I, I landed on Friday and so I'm seeing Sam Kerr's face on a load of skyscrapers and Ellie Carpenter is obviously one of the key figures as well. What has been the shift over the last three weeks? Yeah, Australia's a weird country in the sense that it's not a high population. So our attention can be diverted any which way really quickly with sport because we are good at a lot of sports, we've got our domestic products <laughs> such as rugby league. And... All right, don't need to rub it in. Don't need to rub it in <laughs> after this <laughs> summer. We've got, we've got our domestic pro, um, footy codes and we're, we're decent at cricket. We shared the spoils, of course, with you lot recently in, in both the men's and the women's series. Um, and our tennis players, golfers, motorsport, like you, you look at it and every weekend there's some Australian doing something great around the world and we've got enough to keep us occupied here as well. So there wasn't a huge build up to the tournament, but I think once we got a head around the fact that how big this event actually was when it started and then it gained a bit of momentum and then we had the drama of the Nigeria game where the Matildas threw away a lead and it looked, yeah, uncertain that we were even going to get out of the group and then bang, three wins in a row and the, the whole country's just got behind this team. So yeah, the, the momentum has gathered and gathered really quickly to the uh, the stage it is now, which is almost at unprecedented levels for any sport in the history of sport in Australia. Yeah, I was reading that the match against um, France had the highest TV viewing figures since um, Cathy Freeman in um, uh, the Olympics and back in 2000. One person who is everywhere, as I mentioned, is Sam Kerr. She is had to she's had to embrace that role of being you know face of the team, but she's she is as a person she's quite shy. So um, it's. How has she managed to adopt that role? I think she's helped by the fact that firstly it's at a World Cup, so you are protected in terms of day-to-day media activities. It's not like you're accessible to the public in any great way. You're in the team hotel, you're in the bubble. And also you've got performers in the team that are making themselves household names as well. Now, you go back a month ago, there weren't too many people around Australia sitting over a dinner table with their kids talking about how good Mackenzie Arnold is at saving and penalties, how good Courtney Vine is at taking penalties, how good Harley Rasso is at finishing, how good Mary Fowler is in her gloves. All of these players, how good Caitlin Ford is one-on-one with defenders. It, it's it's just grown. So it, it has kind of spread the love across the Matildas team to not just one central figure, even though Sam is still the rock star of the team, even though she doesn't have the rock star persona, but very much the rock star of the team that it's, um, most people are instantly recognisable with. Let's end this then with the match tomorrow. Where, in your opinion, can Australia get at England and secure their space in the final? In wide areas, in transition with the strengths of the Matildas, I'm worried about the overload in the middle with the, the three, and, and this is all presuming that England played the way that they played since the China game, and that's 
overloading numbers in midfield and that's going to make Katrina Gorry and Kyra Cooney cross work doubly hard and they've worked very hard so far but if Australia can get the ball quickly and crisply to players like Caitlin Ford and Hayley Rasso and I think Sam will start and that's another dimension as well so that's going to occupy Millie Brighton maybe one or two extra defenders and then spaces open up so we saw it tonight in the Spain game when um, Paolo came on that how the game changed with a, a dominant figure up top and I think Sam is definitely that and that's where Australia can get it England it, it won't be I won't call it route one football it's not Wimbledon of the 80s type stuff but it's it'll be pretty pretty quick transitional football and that's the undoubted strength of Australia and that's where we can get England I feel. Australia coach Tony Gustafsson was interesting about the tactical flexibility of both sides ahead of the game, saying, If England play 4-3-3 or 3-5-2, we have also played with three different systems in this World Cup, so we might be flexible and do something different as well. The one thing that I think is interesting is that there are some players, no matter what system they play, that have the very same tendencies. And when we played them last time, we managed to target specifically two of those players and benefited from that tactically. So how do you think England are going to set up for this one, Michael? First of all, I don't know why Tony Gustafsson does this. I I really don't think it helps him at all to say stuff like this and to be going on about... I mean, maybe he was asked about that friendly game, but I thought that was a really weird thing to say. And um, Do you think he wanted to bring it up because it, they beat them and psychological? Is it, is it games? What is it? I just don't think you do that if you're a, if you're a football manager. You don't talk about a, a friendly victory. I mean, I, yeah, Australia were absolutely the best side in that game, but I can't really see the value of it. And talking, he, he said something specific about targeting two players as well. Yeah, specifically was... two of those players, but we don't know who they were. Yeah, I mean... I, I don't think we know. Yeah, we don't know. Um, and to answer your question, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think England will play the same way. And to maybe to slightly contradict myself, but I think Serena Vigman will probably have looked at that friendly and thought we were really vulnerable to Sam Kerr's runs into the channels. And if we fill, you know, if we fill the channels with three players, two of whom play with Kurt Chelsea, with Millie Bright and Jess Carter, I think they've just got the balance right. And I think that three will help them play around Australia's front two when they press as well. So, yeah, just just trying to do something different because not just Australia, but I think there was a feeling that a few teams had slightly worked out how to play against England. I mean, Brazil in the finalissima in the second half did something similar. The first two games of this tournament when England were playing a back four, the performance was pretty bad. So, yeah. Wiegmann has been hard to predict this tournament, but I really, I don't think I can see a single reason for going back to the back four here. So I think it will be the, a very similar 11 to the one we saw in the game against Colombia. I was at the game where Australia beat England 2-0. My, you got a freebie, niece, didn't you? You got I a did. freebie with you, <laughs> off your mates at Brentford. No, uh, no, I, I took my niece and my niece quickly blamed me for being the, uh, the bad luck omen that made England lose. But obviously that was a very different defence that day. I think Carter and Bronze will be the only survivors. It was Esme Morgan and, and Leah Williamson at the back. And, you know, Williamson had a very uncharacteristic performance that was filled with a lot of mistakes. And I didn't think Esme Morgan looked particularly good either. So if Gustafsson's talking about two players that he targeted, well, the two players who were maybe the biggest weaknesses on the day for England won't be starting tomorrow. So as you kind of said, Michael, it's a little bit irrelevant because he's kind of glorifying this, this result but he's going to be facing a completely different team tomorrow. So it was strange for sure. Yeah, and it's funny you should say uncharacteristic mistakes about Williamson because in general I agree, but 
against Kerr, she's struggled quite a lot. Like, there's been a few Arsenal-Chelsea games where I, I think she finds Kerr quite terrifying to play against. And so, yeah, I completely agree with you, Jay. And, and like I say, the fact that it's Brighton Carter up against her, I think... I mean, you could make the argument either way. You could say, well, the striker knows the defender's weaknesses. But I think in those situations, you tend to think the defenders are better off from, you know, knowing... The fact they know one uh, know each other, so um, yeah, I agree. I don't think that game is going to be particularly relevant at all. But I, what I do think is relevant is is the home advantage, and I think the one negative thing about England, you know, this massive wave of support for women's football in England at the moment, is that there's been a massive incentive for England to play all their friendly games at home. These, you know, the game against Brazil, the game against US, which were kind of semi competitive, they don't have that much experience of playing away from home against good sides or even really kind of in neutral venues. It's only been this tournament. So, yeah, the, the home advantage, I think, is going to be massive. Like, just being here in Sydney, you get a, you really get a sense of how the tournament has completely taken off. And the, the atmosphere, I think, is probably going to be unlike anything any of these players have played in before, both Australia and England. But you would think, obviously, it's going to be tougher for England to, to adjust to that. Just quickly, because I, I read your piece earlier. What was the exact number of games that England have played at home in the last two years? It's it's like twenty eight or something like that, isn't it? Uh, you read the piece, Jay. Jay you can. Uh, you can say. <laughs> uh, no, it was. So those I think were, it was five neutral venues, two two proper competitive away games, and then the rest have all been at home. Yeah, and I should say that I excluded games against teams outside the top 60 in the world rankings because they're kind of irrelevant. But yeah, basically they played a friendly away at Switzerland and a qualifier away at Austria, but they haven't gone away to anywhere. And to be honest, even if you were to go away to Spain or France, you're not going to get an atmosphere like this. I mean, this is 83,000. You know, I think Australia have got 90% of the tickets. And from what I gather, they've been buying up the tickets in the England allocation as well. So it's going to be a pretty partisan crowd. Um, and yeah, it should be a great occasion. But I think it will be, I think it'll be a tough, it, it will feel like a proper away game. So we don't know if Sam Kerr is, is available or not, do we? Jay, do you think she's going to start? Do you think, I mean, in these situations, is, is there pressure from Chelsea? Or Chelsea saying, oh, come on now, she's one of our most prized assets. Does, does anything like that come into it? How does it work? I think when, um, even if that was to happen in any type of scenario, if you had the club kind of pressuring the country not to play a player, I think the individual, knowing that they're about to play on the biggest stage of all in a, in a World Cup semi-final in a home country, would be saying to the club representatives, you know, I, I do not care what you think. If I think I'm ready to start, I'll start. I think obviously Australia have done really well to cope without her. So I don't think there's necessarily any need to to kind of hit the panic button and start her if she's still not 110% fit. We've obviously seen Caitlin Ford in particular have a really good tournament and she's, you know, been really good for Australia going forward. So if it still works where Kirk can kind of provide some of that X factor off the bench. And obviously we know a lot of the games in the knockout stages of this tournament have gone to extra time. So you're going to need quality to bring off the bench as, as the games get tenter and tenter and, and the game's the game's gone later and later. Maybe it is good to kind of just keep Kerr in the back pocket as someone who can offer a little bit of unpredictability later on. Yeah, and if he hasn't, I mean, I agree with you completely, Jay, but if he hasn't made his mind up, you know, he might look at how Parallelo changed the game tonight and think, well, if we can get Kerr to do that in probably quite a tight game. I don't think there's going to be many goals in this game. That that could make all the difference. I actually think the balance has been quite nice with, with Van Egmond and Fowler. And I think the... The slightly tricky thing is if Kerr comes back, 
it's probably Fowler that stays in the team, but then she's got to play the deeper role, the kind of number 10 role, which she can do. I mean, she did it in that friendly against England, but I th- when she played there at this tournament, I think she found it quite difficult, particularly against Ireland, just to get the ball. So my suspicion would be that she might come off the bench. Yeah. Like you said, not many goals. Obviously, Australia have kept four clean sheets at, the to- at this tournament, which I think is the most of any other side. So I think the only game they conceded was uh, when they lost to Nigeria off the top of my head. So um, mm. yeah, exactly that. It's going to be tight and tense. And so if you need someone who can kind of come on late on, and I know you mentioned about um, Kerr playing with Carter and Bright. Well, if that's going to be what she's facing for 90 minutes of a game, maybe it's better she comes on for the final half an hour from 60 minutes onwards when her two club teammates are a little bit more tired and she's coming on fresh and she maybe can take a little a little bit of an advantage of any mistakes that they make. Um, obviously, we've mentioned that game against Australia four months ago. Can England take much from that, Michael? Because it was a friendly... And since then, actually, in international football terms, they've both played a fair bit of football because they've been in a tournament. So will they be talking about that game, the England camp? I'm not sure they'll be talking about it, but I do think Serena Vigman will look at how England basically struggled to play through Australia, struggled to work the ball forward and think, yeah, the best way to do this is with a back three. You've got the width in possession. You've got Alex Greenwood who can carry the ball, progress the ball. I actually think she's been the best of England three defenders in this tournament so far. So, yeah, I think the fact that England will play completely differently, partly because of that game, makes the game irrelevant, if that makes sense. I was just going to quickly say on the game four months ago, mm. and to, to think it's four months ago is wild to me because it, it feels like it was only two months ago. I think it was important that England lost, in a way, because if they were coming into this tournament and they were still undefeated, we've seen it with other teams, you know, the, US, the USA not- notably, this kind of air of arrogance and this this extreme confidence that teams go into and maybe they take that off the ball a little bit. So I think the fact that England kind of did, ha- did have a bit of a reality check in that game and they were so poor and as Michael said, really did struggle to offer too much going forward. Sometimes teams need that to just say, okay, we're not the finished article. What are the areas that we still need to improve on? And so I think that just, I'm not saying it takes the pressure off, but it, it just means people's expectations are a bit more realistic. Beyond Kerr, Fowler and Van Egmond, who else should England fans be looking out for as an Australian danger if they haven't seen much of this team, Michael? I've been impressed by Heli Rasso down the right flank. She's quite a straightforward player, but kind of good up and down, very calm when she's got in front of goal. She's got a good relationship with Ellie Carpenter at right back. I think the midfield too, Gorry and, and Cooney Cross have, have had a good tournament as well. People probably know Steph Catley and, and uh, Caitlin Ford, who are now playing on the left together. Obviously, they're both at Arsenal. I think the funny thing is, despite you know the the very pertinent stat Jay said about goals conceded, I don't think the centre backs are that strong. I think they protect the centre backs very well, but if maybe if Russo can just get the ball in the situations that she did for that goal the other night and just be able to turn on the outside of these centre backs, that's the kind of thing I'd be I'd be looking to do against Australia. Just get the ball forward maybe a little bit more quickly than usual because they are quite well organised without the ball. But I think if you put the the centre backs under pressure quickly maybe that's where England will get some joy. Well, thanks very much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast wherever you're listening now so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks to my guests, Michael Cox, Jay Harris and Laia Caveo-Herrero. I'm Michelle Owen and we'll see you after the England game tomorrow. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favourite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, 
has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.